Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio, and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. You will also get bonus content every month, including the audio versions of my regular columns for ESPN. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. This is part two. I'm Graham. You're with the big interview. Today, Darren Anderson again. With the Euros on the horizon, delayed by a year, but nonetheless tantalising this summer, what better player to discuss two majestic tournaments, Euro 96 and France 98, both of which I worked at, but in the case of the latter tournament, that explosive, colourful, ultimately red, white and blue World Cup, I was there to cover Darren and England. We start with Terry Venable's team at the home Euros and what Darren describes as the magical minute that made the summer of 1996. Yes, yes, there's going to be chat about David Baddiel, the Lightning Seeds, Wembley, Gary McAllister, Yuri Geller, David Seaman, Nap bloke with the funny hairstyle. What was his name again? Gaza? Something like that. Then, skipping forward to France, we discuss a thrilling game against Argentina, one of the modern classics of the World Cup, a game which had just about everything except a useful referee. To this day, even though I'm a Scot, I think England were done a huge misjustice by Kim Milton Nielsen, somebody who didn't know how to interpret either the laws of FIFA nor the direct instructions given to referees before France 98. I will let Darren explain. Of course, we make lots of time for Spurs too, and in particular a footballer that we haven't spoken about nearly enough in this series, but one we'd love to have on as a guest, the mighty Teddy Sheringham, one of the most gifted, intelligent, and just flipping fun to watch footballers of my career. Teddy, are you listening? We go into depth on Teddy Sheringham's skills and his ideas about the game, but also what he's like as a person, because Darren and he formed a really nice partnership for Spurs, one which Darren helped maintain when Alex Ferguson wanted Darren to challenge David Beckham on the right wing, or maybe even join the centre midfield of Manchester United. Later, Teddy broke that partnership. Darren's funny on that. Look, thank you to Darren Anderton for waking up early on the west coast of America to talk to us and to Josh and Eli at Barefaced Talent for arranging the alarm call and suggesting to Mr Anderton it was a good idea that he join us. I really enjoyed it. The key thing here is Darren had a rich, interesting, up and down career full of the pain that you have to suffer to become 
an intensely successful sportsman, I think, or woman. But above all, he's really good at describing it. He's terrifically articulate. He still has total recall on all of the major incidents. And he puts everything into it. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Big interview listeners, have a great time with Darren Anderton. And once you have enjoyed it, please tell a friend. Or an enemy. I don't care. Spread the word. Thank you. Pepsi 65 are our sponsors, and they've asked, their simple question is, what was it like to be part of the Euro 96 team that went all the way to the semi-final? I can say that as a Scot who, I'm proud of my nation, and I like to see my club Aberdeen do brilliantly. They're the only one I support. But I was down in England, I was earning my living there. I was covering that England team, and I found them exciting. But also, I think that I don't know whether you were incarcerated away from what was going on in the country, because it was an astonishing time. There was a sense of change. There was a sense of creativity, of energy. And clearly, if you were English at that time in Euro 96, there was this feeling of flowering, irrespective of the song and it's coming home. It just seemed as if everything was clicking at the same time. I don't know if you were housed at Bisham Abbey or, or, or where you were, but I remember once speaking to Maka about that and him saying that as a northern guy coming down, he expected cliques, but Ted Buxton and Terry would make sure that everybody mingled after supper or whatever. I, I think matches where you want to, but the feeling of that that summer, that incredible summer. Darren, you're 96. The, the things that stand out for you. It's the feeling that you get from it. It gives you a little, a little tingle. Just that, For that reason, I think it all came together. It started slowly. So Terry Venables, yes, and Ted Butts and Brian Robson, there's no clicks. They've been there, done it. The players, of course, it comes down to the players as well. That a, we had eight or nine captains in that team. They were incredible. They were leaders. You know, there was no, definitely no clicks. Everyone knew that they were top top players, but also that it was a team, and that comes down to Terry Venables making sure that happens, giving you your, your night out, even if it, you know, it didn't work out as it should. Getting abused by the media like we did became a little bit of a closed. Shit, you know, let's stick together. No, no, we're just not going to say a lot. We're going to deal with it in-house. Exactly what Terry did. You know, he was going to give us another night off to go home or do whatever you wanted, uh, what would have been after the Scotland game. But because of the Switzerland game, a couple of the boys got photographed coming out of a restaurant or a bar. Terry just said, look, I just can't do it. We'll bring all the families down and you can go and see them on a Sunday in the day and do whatever you want, just be back for dinner at 7 o'clock. So you just respected that. You knew that he couldn't let you go and have your night out after the Scotland game. Back to the hotel, we'll have a few beers, let's enjoy it, we've got a game Wednesday. That's That feeling of that, that we were shut away, but then when you left and you went to games and the the flags and the people on bridges going down the... M40, A40, towards, Wend- towards Wembley, as you got closer and closer and people and people, it felt like you were part of something special. It felt like you were a, a rock star. It was madness. And whoever we were, I mean, Gazza obviously had had all that, no doubt about it, but um, no one ever experienced that. No one was ever going to experience it again. It was, it was incredible. And 
And then after the Scotland game and then the song comes on after the game and the whole crowd stay there and enjoy it. That was the moment, of course, that mad minute where, you know, Scotland missed the pen and then Gaza goes and scores the one to go up the other end. Um, that moment, I feel, that minute is what made that whole summer click. Never mind man, mad minute and Gaza scoring because you're in it. And we like to talk about football vision and intelligence in this. So... Again, Gary McAllister was a guest in this season. I was speaking to me actually since his regards. I was speaking to him half an hour ago. <clears throat> He's now a champion at Rangers with Stephen Gerrard, and and I thought, given what happened to him on that afternoon, it was it was bigger than to say, "Please send Darren my bit." But he did. There's a penalty awarded. Gary, you'd have thought would be a, a nine out of ten, eight out of ten finisher from eleven meters out. David Seaman, top class, might save it, but. Clearly at the time, you can see it does roll. Gary has said that prior to the tournament, uh, Yuri Geller had said he put crystals all over the place. When we were interviewing Gary for the big interview, Yuri Geller phoned him during the interview. Literally, we're in Leeds as he's describing what happened. Now, that is spooky. But you're on the pitch. Um, you've got the possibility of, of giving away a goal. David Seaman gets the ball. Can you remember, even if you have to make it up, asterisk, your thought process, or, or did you have an established pattern when something might turn around in a game? So it's a penalty. Do you, do you remember even thinking about where you have to move as David Seaman's getting the ball out, which I think is to Teddy? Because famously, you, you you position yourself and you look to see where the ball might go, should go. I don't know, maybe it's a blur, or, or maybe your memories are just from having looked at it back. But you you were a fun that your brain and your vision were fundamental parts of that goal. Yeah. Um... I mean, the, the the initial reaction is, oh, shit, what have we done? It's deja vu from the previous Saturday against Switzerland. I mean, we definitely played a bit better against Scotland up to that point. But it was a similar thing. You know, we started, we got the goal, then Switzerland came back into the game. So you, you're straight away thinking, oh, no, we, we've blown it here. We're in big, big trouble. And I think if that goal goes in, the confidence completely drains out of us. No doubt about it, after what happened the week before. So, I mean, what a moment. Then that lift and, you know, just running up the pitch. Of course, I've played with Teddy now, the relationship we have. I know that he brings the ball down. I'm against the thing. I can, You know, you can see the run coming from Gaza. God said, pass, pass up, you know, third-man run, Gaza's in. You know, it, it, it's there. You can see it all happening in front of you. So as the ball comes to me, it's a, it's a pretty simple ball you know, played into his path. And then you just think, I mean, I thought he was going to hit it, you know, with his left foot myself, but when he, it became slow motion. There's no doubt about it. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, this is going to, this is, this is the one. And of course, when you're involved in a goal as well, as well, that you even get that extra little bit of a buzz. And, you know, I always enjoyed being part of setting up goals and that sort of thing, which, which, of course, when it's a great goal like that, it's it's even even better in a game like that um, against Scotland with the, what we've already spoke about about my dad and everything. So um, when it went in, the, and then the celebration, which just summed it up, was just incredible. That feeling is one of the best feelings I've ever had because the pressure was so intense, and the react the the feeling really was shit. We're in. Big, big trouble here. You know, Scotland started to come into the game. You know, they, they, they were looking strong. So that moment is 
is everything to us and shows you what football's all about. It's all about little moments. You could have played great and, of course, against Holland, everything we did went right. But um, that's that moment, that is exactly what was going through my mind. Do you think if Gaza, and this is supposition, do you think if Gaza's not playing in Scotland then, he doesn't choose the impish thing? Because I've always felt, because he'd been astonishing in Scotland, he'd been genuinely, and he'd begun to enjoy himself so much, and he felt king of the walk. He was mucking around with McCoyst and Gorham, and up there it was just pure head. But he's got Gorham to beat, it's Colin Henry. I, I think he's, if it's against any other side, he probably takes the, the easiest, coolest finish. But because it's Scotland, he's like, get ready every chance I mean because the boys used to wind him up about it and then you know oh, what, you, won the, you won up in Scotland and all that so he used to get all sorts of grief from the boys in the camp and that so but you could sense it before the game you know he's mucking around with Coisty and, and, and Andy Gorham you knew he was desperate to score against Gorham absolutely desperate and to do something like that and genius I mean that's exactly what it was absolute that's you know the first game he hadn't played great. He got all the stick because he was the main man for the dentist chair out in Hong Kong and all that. And he, don't, he, don't, he didn't say anything. He didn't retaliate. He just got on with his football and did what you should do. You answer on the pitch. And, it, you know, the perfect story for Gaza to score against Scotland. I understand the relief to, to beat Scotland like that in group terms after the, the draw with Hodgson's side. Your hosts, you, you minimum want to be in the knockout and then see what happens. So I understand that. But but every time I hear an England player who is part of that squad talking about the Holland game, it's rare in the modern game. I'm going to ask you later on about 1998 when I thought that you, you were a side that could and should have gone a long way. And again, untypically for Scott, I was furious that night against Argentina. But any English footballer who was involved with that squad that Holland game comes back in about how imperious you were as a side how beautiful the decision making the passing the space opening against a really good side I mean they might have been a little bit out of sorts but if you count off the names in that squad particularly the starting 11 you know you've, you've kicked around a, a, a really beautiful side one whose whose core members were winning European trophies absolutely everywhere what what went so right and what did it feel like that day? It was an unbelievable feeling, it, just in terms of obviously we got to that point. But to be 4-0 up at Wembley against a top, top team, under the lights, that song's going round, football's coming home. The pressure of all these games, pressure of playing for England anyway, you know you better do well or you're going to get battered. You want to do well. You want to play well. It was... It just felt different. It was the game was at night. The pitch was a little bit quicker. Players were, were now playing with were fuller confidence that we now believed after the Scotland game. Yeah, we're we're a good team. Let's go. We can we can do this. We knew the Holland game was going to be on paper the toughest game in the group. Things that you know, we just played a brand of football that Terry Venables had obviously had in mind for the two years building up to that. This is what it's about. This is where we... He, he had a vision of where how he wanted the team to play. And that was it. That was the performance that that he was waiting on and believed in from that team. And the goals we scored, the fact that Teddy got a couple, Gaz, uh, uh, Shearer got a couple, you know, the SAS, 
everything was perfect. Your strikers score two goals each. Gaz is back to his best. He's going through things. You know, it's a game that I remember that you couldn't get tired in. It was so surreal. The adrenaline was incredible. Literally, feel like you're walking in, you know, on water. You, the song's going around. You're literally humming along to the song whilst playing. It's madness. You know, there's no pressure. It's like you're in the park with your your brothers and just enjoying playing football. It's it was the best half hour I think to just enjoy and be able to take it all in which you don't normally do because there's so much going on and you, you know, there's so much pressure. You concentrated, of course you concentrated, but you're able to just take it all in and look around and hum along. And it was, it was unreal. It's an object lesson in, in psychology and sport, because if you, if, if however you do it through endorphin or, or David Padil and, you know, the lightning seeds, however you can relieve yourself of the pressure and go, I'm just going to do what I enjoy. No matter if it's pole vaulting or it's horse riding or it's football, you, you, you'll you do it better. And if you enjoy it into the bargain, if you could feel like that in every match, you'd have played 1,600 matches rather than well over 600. Thank you for answering that question so nicely about Euro 96. Um, I, I, I said I wanted to stop somewhere. And if you're willing, because this is about you, but again, you had a connection with them. You're our first-hand witness. We're desperate in due course to to get him to come on to this. The three of us who are behind this interview series, we've always felt that watching Teddy Sheringham was, um, I mean, not just a pleasure, but an education. He seemed to have ideas of space and timing. And and he he was one of the players in, in particularly across the 90s who consistently just did the right thing time and time again. I don't know if simplicity is genius quite encapsulates Teddy. I, I, I don't think it does. But he's a player who could have survived and thrived in any era of football because it, he just seemed to have a brilliant brain. But you played with him. You know him. What was it like playing with him? And try and, dis- try and give a better description of what Teddy Sheringham is and why he was an elite footballer. Well, I think the biggest thing is that he made you look a better footballer when you played with him because of his movement was was simple in terms of it were it, but on every occasion sometimes you just watch I can watch a striker now and they stand there and they wait for someone to pass the ball into them and the centre back comes in and nicks it N- never ever with Ted because his he would always have movement so if I had the ball out wide and he wanted the ball into feet he would go towards the opposition goal, a yard or two, and then come back and get it. And he'd have two or three yards of space. That made it easier to control. It's always opposite movement. If I got the ball deep in my own half, Teddy would come to me, towards me, just two yards, and turn and go the other way. Didn't have great pace, but we still get there because of that movement. It was incredible. And then his finishing, just how calm he was. The madness of it is, is that you watch some centre forwards now who want to come back and play and you know spray the ball around, but then don't get in the box and score the goals as well. Teddy did all that. So the the one that compares to that is of course Harry Kane that people were talking about now and the fact that he's making all these assists as well as scoring goals. Teddy did that for his yeah you know, fifteen twenty years. That's what Teddy was all about. The opposite movement I think was the biggest thing for me. But also he loved scoring goals. So. 
for me, I knew out wide, I needed to get half a yard and whip the ball in to an area. And Teddy would either be be drag, be go into the near post to come out wide, or or go go out and come into the near post. It was just movement, and it's. I don't know if players, other players, are lazy. But it is fairly simple. But Teddy had a, obviously had a great upbringing in the game. Maybe knew that that pace that people talked about that he lacked, he had to do in order to get those yards of space. Um, but as he got older, he got, he got better, no doubt about it. I think going to Manchester United and winning things helped him and helped with the confidence of all that. Uh, but he was just, an inc- he could score every goal. Was a leader as well, was hard as nails. That's what I wanted to touch on, Darren, because, you know, it's been clear, and I tried to tease out in the first part, that you're made of tough stuff, that you've got a, um, a stern character, you're redoubtable, you deal with setbacks, and you do what you're born to do well. Teddy, whenever I met him or spoke to him, or whenever I listened to him or when I watched him, in the, in the best sense, he's a bit of a geezer, because I don't think pressure really got to him. I think I have seen few footballers who started at he, he was an English Cantona. He started around the pitch going, this is my day, this is my territory. I can turn my collar up if I want to or I don't want to. It doesn't matter because I am Teddy. And I think in elite sport, that part of your character actually helps a lot. Oh, for sure. And especially, you know, when he started out at Millwall, that sort of thing, you've got to be tough, right? Um, he's a London boy. Always used to laugh. <laughs> he never had credit cards. He was all cash. <laughs> we were on the bus and all that. And he always wanted to play cards. Um just a good lad. I got on really well with him and still do. Um, he's still the same on the golf course. Slow as hell, but he grinds you down. He's desperate. You know, he wins. He's a good golfer. Um, good lad. Um, and looked after me, to be honest. I think he really helped me when I went to Thailand because I struggled the first, you know, six months. And he could tell what I was like. It was kind of funny, you know, when we spoke about it with my dad. And when we played Lazio in like, a game for Gaza... And I was playing out wide and I was just screaming and shouting, you know, give me the ball, da-da-da. And uh, we sat, he come, sat next to me on the plane on the way home and he went, you love a moan, don't you? You love it, don't you? <laughs> and I was only 20 and I'd only been there like, you know, a couple of months, but you God, you'd love a moan, don't you? He said, that's, that's all right. He said, but, you know, just you, you, sometimes just relax, you know. You're obviously a top, top player. Um, but he, he loved that about me and he was probably far, five years older than me and just came to the club as well I was struggling and I think we just hit it off from there he just he he knew what I was all about I think that you know of course we talk about football he reads people really well he knows what people are all about he's he's he's, he's smart he's a geezer like you say he doesn't take any rubbish from people you know no one's going to mug him off as they would say he's he's very streetwise and he was on the pitch and he knew how to look after himself. Uh, so when you had him in your changing room, you always felt like you had half a chance. Before the rest of this big interview, I'd like to tell you that our entire archive of audio and video content is now on our new YouTube channel. We've begun filming all of our interviews, and there are already loads of clips with guests, including Rio Ferdinand, Connor Cody, Brendan Rogers, and Jamie Carragher, plus full interviews for you to watch and to share. Please do share with friends. 
Go to YouTube and search Graham Hunter or click on the link in the show notes to this episode and become a subscriber. I honestly think you'll enjoy it. Thanks. I love that in life. I love that in football. I, I respect people like that. And I think it, it feels like, as a Scot who grew up watching all the TV that was pumped to you from London, you were taught that London geezers were sharper, were a pace ahead, were funnier, which Teddy definitely is. He's very sharp, very witty indeed. To me, um, I adored watching him. And, and there are a lot of footballers you'd say, I wish they'd come back. But that connection between you and him for Spurs and for England was precious and you'd bring it back in, a, in an instant if you could, if you had a time machine. It, it maybe could have happened at another club too. And um, another one of our socios, another one of our members who supports us is Tom Lee, who's been with us forever and ever. And, and he just says, he seems to remember that there genuinely was a possibility. As much as you became attached to Spurs and Spurs was your club and you renewed time and time again, he remembers that there was an opportunity um, when one of the greatest of them all, Alex Ferguson, wanted you. Tom thinks, Tom asks specifically, were you close to joining Manchester United? And were there other opportunities to join big clubs when you were at your absolute peak for Spurs, where you had to stop and think a couple of seconds to say, no, I'm staying, or, or boy, no, I fancy that one. Yeah, I think, yeah, the United thing was was definitely real. Uh, when I signed my second contract at Spurs, we uh, my agent, Leon Angel, he, he put something in the contract, which I didn't even think about. It was just that if a club offered over, I think it was four million quid, I could speak to them. So what it kind of did, it meant that there was no length to the contract because if someone offered that, that, you know, it wasn't that I wanted to leave. He just put it in there. He said, you know, buy, you know, gives you maybe a bit of freedom if that were to happen. I didn't even see it as there being a need for it to be in there. But it... But it was, and then I had a great year, ninety four, ninety five, and I, you know, I was now part of the England team. And you know, whenever there was a game, I was playing, and uh, and I remember playing the Umbro Cup, and we played Sweden, and I scored the equaliser in the last minute with one of my favourite goals, which I volleyed in off both posts. I remember we played Stuka that night in the at the hotel up in Leeds, and Gaza was up there messing around, and all that. We were all playing snooker, and then. Uh, Gary Pallister was was playing with me. He just said, uh, "Oh, Gaffer's desperate for you to come." Come, I went okay. And he he had the same agent as me, and he went, "Is there some little clause about you know maybe leaving?" And I was like, uh, "Maybe, but I don't know." I was like, "Yeah, maybe." So that was that, and then we played Brazil on the Sunday and. Uh, I remember my agent being Leon was the, at the game and in the players' lounge afterwards, and I was going to America the next day. And he said, "Well, the chairman's on the phone." He said, "He wants to come round to the house. We've got to go and see him." I said, "What?" He went, "Yeah, you're going on holiday tomorrow. We better go around there because I think he's it's panic stations. You know, Fergie wants you. He's going to, you know, he's definitely going to be paying off for more than that." So oh, okay, so we went round there, spoke to the chairman. I said, "Yeah, no, I'm happy to stay." And I don't, you know, I was, and I was, I was really, yeah. Buzzing to stay, so I just spoke to him. He just wanted a bit of reassurance that I was happy to sign another contract to get rid of that clause. Um, 
and Fergie had had some problems with Andre Konchelskis that at the end of that season, so he was going to be moving on. Uh, spoken to Paul Parker, I'd played with, with England, and I think Parker said, "Yeah, go for it <laughs> for sure." Uh, I went on holiday to America. Kate, I remember flying back, and there was Fergie had said something in the press that there's only one person he wants that summer, and it's me. Uh, so when I got back, I remember speaking to him. He called the house. And I just said, yeah, he's like, love you, want you to come up. I had a problem with Kanchelskis, it looks like he's going to move on. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I'd love to come up and have a chat and have a little look around. Uh, and kind of left it at that. The next day, from that point, back round to the chairman's house. And he basically didn't let me leave the house without signing the new deal. So um, I was really happy at Spurs. I was also, I feel like I'm a loyal person. Spurs were... And the fans were so good to me the first three or four months I was there when I was really struggling. The media were battering me. The fans were not the exact opposite. Um, and I just felt like I didn't want to jump ship. But this, of course, I knew it was an amazing opportunity. Uh, but Hughes, Ince and Konchelskis were leaving. And I just thought, I might be better off where I am. And Euro 96 is coming next year. I knew that was going to be a big thing. I was desperate to be part of it. I thought if I went to United, maybe, and I struggled like I did when I first went to Spurs, would it turn into a disaster? Would I then lose my place in the England team? But it all, and it all boiled down to me being happy where I was. And so when I look back at it now, I mean, I guess I also thought that the opportunity would come again. I had that belief that... I was just 23. I was arguably one of the best players in the country. I felt like I was at that time, as that obviously was the reason that Fergie came in for me and wanted me to go there. Um, so I think that, being honest, I think there was, I felt like it could happen in the future without a doubt. He didn't have a lot of luck with that group, Dan, because if you think about it, he tried and failed to get you. He, he genuinely thought Shearer was walking in the door when, when Shearer eventually backed out. He tried so hard to get Gaza, didn't get Gaza. You know, it's extraordinary that um, a man, because he's a character, I mean, he's a tough man, he, he doesn't forgive people who say no easily, but he's a charismatic man. He's not just, I, I obviously knew him from my time at Aberdeen and throughout my reporting career. And one of the things I'd say about him is that it's not just about the trophies, it's not just about how he manages you when you're playing. He is a very charismatic man, and I think that saying no, although you've laid out really intelligent criteria for saying, no, I'm happy here, and the loyalty one chimes with everybody who loves the game. That If we saw more of that, we'd all be happier. But he was a charismatic man and difficult to turn down, I think. Definitely. But then so was Sir Alan Sugar when I went round to his house. <laughs> and that, I think that's what was important to me. Jerry Francis was literally saying, if you go, I think I'll go chuck it in. Um, you know, Jürgen was leaving. Uh, Nicky Barnby was homesick. Chica Popescu was going to Barcelona. Um, and that team kept together would have been unbelievable. And I think for me to go as well might have been the last straw, even to the point that when I had decided to stay and... Sir Alan Sugar wanted to do a press conference in order to announce that I was staying, that it was a big deal. And I remember I was 
that of course it was the summer i remember teddy phoning me uh, in, in a panic that i was going to be leave him because he told there was this press conference and i was uh, oh my god surely not don't tell me you're going as well but and i went no 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 i've, I've signed i've it's to announce that I've signed, so it's all, all good. <laughs> all good. See you next week. And he was like, he was relieved. Unfortunately, he phoned me two years later, same time of year, to say, I've, got, I've just signed for United and was laughing his ass off, <laughs> which absolutely devastated me. So, um, you know, we kind of, we still laugh about it. And he obviously says, God, I wish you went there. You know, what a. Phew. You'd have loved it up there, you know, with those players and with that, with, Alex, with Sir Alex. But, you know. At the time, Dan, I mean, this is now just flights of fancy, but I followed, I, I watched one of my duties was to report. Chelsea were pretty big at the time and Manchester United. And during that treble season, I, I was sent to cover every Champions League game. And I remember Fergie going at that stage. David Beckham wanted to play in centre midfield. There was a host of clubs before he went to Real Madrid when they fell out that wanted Beckham. He Beckham was, you know, he really felt that he could command in centre midfield. He, he ultimately had to play there in the majority of the 99 final. And, and Ferguson had said, long after you'd said no to him, there's only one player. If I could get three, got to go there. But had you been brought in at that stage, David Beckham was emerging at the club. Um, you were similar generations. I mean, what do you think his thinking was? You on the right instead of David Beckham? You in the middle with Beckham right for United? Or how, how might it have worked, given that you, you spent quite a lot of time in the international side playing with David Beckham? How do you imagine it might have evolved? Well, I think it would have been tough because, I mean, because you've got to think of the rest of the midfield. You've got Giggsy and Scalzi and Roy Keane. So, um, I, well, I obviously, when he wanted me to go there, it was to go there and play right midfield and be, and be that. And that was probably another reason why me like Bex actually wanted to play centrally because of that frustration that I told you about I want to be involved in the game I don't want to be stood out wide I think at United it might have been different because they're dominating 70% of the get possession in games you get in the ball in a bit of space and that would have been great like it was for Bex you know get the ball you know whip it in you know drop your shoulder I mean that's what I was all about, and that's why I created and you know assisted a lot of goals from that position. But I did want to play centrally. I did see myself playing centrally for that reason. So, funnily enough, Glenn Hoddle always had a vision of us both playing in the same team for that reason that we could both do both jobs and we could switch within a game, and that would create flexibility. And of course, when we went to the World Cup, we both played pretty well and scored the two go- two goals against Colombia so he was right there but um I would have seen myself playing in the form I was was in at Spurs that year and for England as well I didn't see you know I saw myself going there and of course playing but Bex I think Sir Alex Ferguson most certainly had me to go there to play in that midfield four without knowing just how good Bex would become uh, and you know the others coming through. I mean, you know, Alan Hansen. You know, you don't win anything with kids. Um, that was the summer that I'd said no. So I think no one really saw it coming, uh, and myself included. Then it, it leads me to close on a couple of items, and um, you know they involve you, I suppose, and Beckham too. I'm going to close with a, a, a sponsor's question, but I have to ask you, Dan, because again. 
as a Scot, I was at um, France 98 covering the England national team and I got really angry. I got angry about the way in which, um, you know, Beckham was treated right from the start when he was dropped and he was on the on the bench in the opening game. I think that was Tunisia. And then the Colombia game was a really thrilling performance, a good win, qualification. And, and in that game against Argentina, it has to be, although it's a sore classic, it has to be regarded as one of the modern classic games. And prior to that tournament, FIFA put round a circular saying the tackle from behind is a red card. That's it. Here are referees. It is a simple way forward. It's a, in that mad game where two sides of high quality are playing flat out back and forward, and Diego Simeone comes through Beckham. Beckham does what he does. And Kim Milton Nielsen sends Beckham off and leaves Simeone on the pitch. And then what happens, and I personally think that maybe Glenn Hoddle handled it, but not, I can be as frank as you. He handled it badly. I, I thought he handled it really badly and Beckham's hung out to dry a little bit. But I, I, on the pitch, afterwards, now, am I saying things that chime with you? Because I thought that was a horrendous decision by the Danish referee. And, and I'd go so far as to say inexplicable. Yeah, well, it was. And of course, for us, that's, you know, the only World Cup I played in and that he'd taken away my opportunity to go further in the tournament. And, you know, you know that's the dream, to go try and win a World Cup. And that's taken away from you with a, a decision that was the wrong decision. You can dress it up however you like. Um, I think the tournoi, <coughs> the tournoi the year before, Bex picked up a couple of bookings, silly bookings with a little bit of petulance. Hoddle called him out for it and said, look, you know, you can't do that. That might cost us. That's, you know, Glenn being Glenn. Um, <clears throat> he was right. But, it, you know, it's never a sending off. Never in a hundred years. The tackle from behind was what it was. But, you know, obviously we had to get on with that. And, of course, we still performed in, the, in that match and managed to take it to penalties. We had Sol Campbell's goal disallowed, which was very harsh. It was a horrible way to go out of the tournament. I mean, we lost the Germans on penalties and now and now against Argentina as well. And we played... That first half was one of the best 45 minutes of football I'd ever played in. It was unreal. I mean, I feel like I it took me longer to get into my flow in Euro 96 after coming back from the injuries that's, that year. But I felt uh, at the World Cup, I was into it straight away. And I've never felt so fit and the pace and the quality of that game was incredible. Uh, we were 1-0 down through a penalty. The next 40 minutes, we were sensational. It was unbelievable football. I think Scolzi might have put scored another one. I think there was one that was disallowed because the ball had just gone out. We could have been 3 or 4 one up. It was unreal. And the, the tip, I guess, of football where sometimes everything does go right, this was a game where it didn't. They scored that one minute before half-time and that five minutes after half-time changed everything. The goal that they scored was a good goal from them, no doubt about it. Uh, really clever, yeah. Um, and I don't think you can blame anyone, but you just, of course, you think, oh my God, why didn't we stop that? How didn't we stop that? It was a good goal. It was a good goal. So to go in at 2-2 was so deflating considering how we played. It really was. Um, but the belief was... Well, okay, carry on doing what we'll do. We'll, go to, we'll, we'll beat these, you know, no, no doubt. But then, of course, the referee decision changes everything. And we, in the end, we did well to get, get to penalties. And 
I'll never forget it. It was, it was, a, it was a tough, tough one. There was a lot of tears in that changing room. Um, you know, the manner in which it, it happened was was really tough to take. And then, of course, when we're outside, you know, waiting outside our bus with our families and that, and you've got the Arg- Argentinians come by, banging on the windows, giving us all sorts of shit. It was made for a pretty nasty evening. I guess one way to look at it as we stop now over the last question is that football wouldn't be so beautiful if you didn't have to go through cruelty and, and grief. And, and that was a brutal, brutal night. Our sponsor, Spec365, asked a good one to close on, Darren. What advice? Because many people look at this England squad and think that however it's conjured up by Gareth Southgate, there's a lot of talent. There's some players who've won tournaments at junior level before. The English game has advanced in terms of possession in tournaments a great deal. There are a lot of people who are good at dead ball situations. Their question is, what advice would you give the England players who will be playing some of their games at home in a major tournament? If you can draw from what you learned across your career and project forward to this summer when England are, you know, largely going to be at Wembley, what advice would you give them? Play with freedom and enjoy it. Uh, you're going to be so excited <laughs> that you've got to control it. And I think the first game against Switzerland, you know, you, I mean, we'd gone two years with playing friendlies to then, which were huge. And of course, I loved it. That was, the adrenaline was incredible. But this was different. And we started well and still got the goal. But that nervous energy and that everything about it, get to that point where I said in the Holland game where you've got that freedom and you're just walk it, walking on water and you're just enjoying it and go and express yourself and that that's what it's all about you know and I, that's why I love Gareth I think he gives them that freedom I th- I really do you you know all the, there's lots of quality in a lot of teams you, it's about how those boys play and how you create things in that final third and we've got players who can do it so that's the biggest thing for me. You, you've got to control that excitement and that nervous energy to get to that point where you're playing with freedom and, and enjoying it. And if we can do that, then we're going to have a hell of a chance. Well, I, I hugely hope for your sake that you, you get that thrill of a run far in the tournament, probably escaping the group, having won the other two games and lost heavily to, to Scotland, obviously. That's, that's, that's a given. That's a given. Look, Darren, I'm, I'm honest to my word, but before I let you go, I have to say that that was just a pure joy. It, it's always fantastic to speak to somebody who's achieved our dreams and the listeners' dreams, but can describe it well and with enthusiasm. We've asked you to go back to good and bad times, and it's been a genuine pleasure. It's been uplifting listening to you. Um, it, it, you've given an example of why the big interview exists so we're hugely grateful to you Tom and Will, our socios will be as well all I can say to you is thank you very much indeed um, the big interview owes you one and thank you for making your fantastic career sound wonderful today it's such a crack of dawn moment for you over in the United States Darren Anderton, listen, thank you very much play up Pompey, thank you very much indeed My pleasure, thank you very much for having me appreciate it Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else?
editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson.